Thank you, children and leaders. This morning we continue our series in the Gospel of John, the wonderful Gospel of John, and we are up to chapter 10, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses. Jesus, the door. Jesus, the door. Or the gate is another way we could look at it. When you think about it, much, much of our life revolves, uh, no pun intended, around gates and doors. We are surrounded by them everywhere. We open and close doors to our houses, our cars, our garages, our offices. We arrive and depart in airports through gates and we use the, this imagery when we are in transition from one situation in life to another as, as in closing of one door and opening another. So when it comes to Jesus, we're going to look at why he used this expression as the door. Before we get to that, to put things in context, Jesus is continuing his hard discussion with the Pharisees in chapter 9 and before that. Remember in the original writings, there are no chapter and verse separation. It's all one writing. (coughs) And chapter 9 is about spiritual blindness. Now, in this chapter, <coughs> in this chapter, Jesus changes the imagery from light and blindness to sheep and shepherds. Yet again, Jesus used ordinary things to explain a very deep truth. And Jesus was speaking to people who understood their sheep and what it took to raise them. He first used an illustration about sheep that uh, were kept in cities and villages. So the first, the first way you can look at this, these words of Jesus is look at, at, at in an urban setting, in an urban setting. They were normally kept in a large community pen or sheepfold where a number of shepherds with their flock of sheep would bring their flocks, after grazing for their day, they would bring their flocks for the night, somewhere on the outskirts of the villages. Someone from the village would be assigned to watch all the sheep for the evening. There was a roster going on. It's your turn to look after the sheep tonight, after all of the sheep, not just his own. In the country, in the country, shepherds, would build their own sheepfold or pen. So each shepherd with their flock will gather some twigs and, and some branches and whatever they had and build their own sheepfold or pen. And they would use uh, different things, even stones sometimes, to, to build these pens. Sometimes they were able to keep the sheep inside a cave even. And then after their sheep entered the fold, they would plant themselves across the entrance to the pen or the sheepfold. And this way he he would know if danger was 
trying to get in to the sheepfold to take, uh, to take his sheep or to stop, I suppose, the sheep from wandering off. Now, I believe that Jesus is referring to both, both of these settings, both the, the, the urban setting for, for the sheepfold or the, the pen or the ones who are in the country. Now, I believe Jesus refers to, to both of these in the text for two distinct reasons. Firstly, Jesus was trying to expose the false teaching of the Pharisees, while secondly, he is introducing himself as the truth of God, as the, the true shepherd of God. To understand this concept, and you need to understand the Israeli mindset here, the, the, the image of, of God as the shepherd goes back to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God rebukes, that was our first reading, God rebukes the evil shepherds or the leaders of Israel for the way that they were treating God's sheep or the people of Israel. And he speaks of a coming day when they will be judged, the leaders will be judged, and when God himself will gather his scattered flock in the person of the Messiah. That's what Ezekiel 34 was, was looking forward to that day. So John 10 serves as an, as an indictment, as an indictment of a, the religious leaders as wicked shepherds and presenting himself as the true shepherd, the good shepherd that we're going to look at next week. But before he does that, Jesus identify himself, identifies himself as the gate not only the gate, he is the gate, but he also identifies himself as the gatekeeper. So what type of door is he? Well, firstly, he is secure. Secure, verses 1 and 2. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. By their very nature, the purpose of a door or a gate is not only to keep things in, but also to keep things out. Evil shepherds do not dare to present themselves to the gatekeeper because he will know them for what they are and will not grant them access to the fold. Their intent is obvious. This is why they try and gain access and sneak in another way by climbing through the back or climbing through the wall. We only do that if we've forgotten the key, breaking through the window. And then if the neighbour sort of watches, then the neighbour says, yeah, that's Paul again, he's forgotten the key. However, if he finds somebody else trying to sneak in through the window, he says, what's going on here? In verse 10, the, verse, the first part of that marvellous verse, verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill 
and destroy. Steal, kill and destroy. Another way to describe this is is a home invasion, which is a terrible experience. I hope it's never happened to you. Because when that happens, here what he's describing here, it's not just about stealing stuff from the house. It's not just getting valuables and running off with them. But sometimes in home invasion situations that even after they got the stuff, they don't want any witnesses. They don't want anybody giving descriptions of their faces. So what they do is they go and kill the people, destroy the house. That's what Satan does. He doesn't just come to steal. He comes to steal, kill and destroy. He doesn't want to be your friend. I hope that more people understand that. He's out to kill you. After he seduces you, he wants to kill you. If he cannot do that, he is out to destroy your witness, your testimony, to entrap you. He wants to make sure that you cannot be effective in reaching others for Christ. And he will try to tempt you to cause you to stumble, to sin, maybe even in ways that you didn't think possible. He will try and get you to compromise your stance. Anything he can, he can do to, he will do to you, he will do against you and to others. So Satan is, is out to get us. I mean, that's, that's his intent. That's what Jesus told us. If he went after Jesus, the Son of God, you can rest assured that he will come after you and me. Satan is out to steal your fruit of the Spirit so that you do not bear fruit, so that the only fruit that you produce is rotten fruit. He wants you to be miserable, unhappy, to lose hope and sink into despair. He's out to kill your relationship with God. I'm just going over this because you need to be reminded here. Because we forget so soon. As soon as you you get out of here, you go, oh, Satan, my buddy, here we go again. Glad to see you again. I hope you understand this because I'm I'm, I'm not stopping there. Because this is serious. This is life and death. He will do anything he can, he can do to keep you from, from praying, from reading the Bible, from going to church. He will do anything he can to stop you from getting along with other Christians. He will make you start being suspicious. Why didn't so-and-so say hello to me on Sunday? He will put enmity with fellow believers and enmity within families themselves. He will put roadblocks, anything he can do to trip you up. And when we find ourselves under attack, 
We need to run to Jesus, the shepherd who wants to protect us. Through Christ the door, through Christ the door, the door is shut to an old life of sin and guilt and pain and loss. That's what the Apostle Paul says, this is what you once were. He is the door that, that can shut out the pain of, of those things of the past as you move on to the new life. By acknowledging that we are sinners, we accept the forgiveness of the gospel. And once we are his, there is security in Jesus. There are others who teach different things, but Jesus is the truth. But the teaching of the Bible is clear. The teaching of the Bible is clear that once a person has truly put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he is secure in Christ. No one, no one can snatch you from his hands. But just because you are saved, obviously doesn't give you a free ride through this life, free from pain and suffering, no. And we'll talk about this. What else is, is, is Jesus the gate, Jesus the door? What else is he? Well, he is familiar. It is familiar. This is what he says. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out and when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they, they do not recognise a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Sometimes when you are given an address, you are given the description of the front gate, the description of the front door. It's a yellow gate, it's a, a red gate, it's a black gate door. So it, it, it helps you to, to visualise if you've been there, if you're going there for, for the first time. After you've been to that particular place a few times, then you become familiar with it. You know where you're going so you don't get lost. But after you have to, but after you try and explain it to somebody else, then you have to go through the whole process again. Now in the morning, the different shepherds would come to gather their sheep from the communal pen. The sheep have had their sleep, they've been snoring all night and then the shepherd comes along to the, to the gatekeeper who was in charge of looking after the pen and says to him, mate, I'm going to have to take my sheep out to pasture. And how did he differentiate between 
one sheep and the other. They all look the same. Mostly. They all look white. And one of the ways in which they did this is that the sheep knew the sound of their individual shepherd's voice, would only respond to him and follow him. We're not talking about hundreds or thousands of sheep here. We're talking about maybe a dozen, maybe 20. The sheep grew up with the shepherd. They are familiar with his voice. So the moment he stood up in front of the sheep, come on boys, let's go. There's the boss. We're going we're gonna to follow. It wasn't like he said, okay, you, I want you, you, you. No, the sheep started following. They came out. I knew who they were. G'day, Barry, how's it going? Good to see you again. Yeah, let's go out for a wander. Sell out a bill. Sheep know the shepherd's voice. The sheep know when it wasn't the true shepherd who was calling them. They recognise it. The sheep should be able to recognise the false shepherds when they're trying to tickle their ears. They should be able to understand between truth and a lie rather than just follow them because everybody else is. And if they do follow, it is probably because they weren't of us in the first place. There is never a shortage of false shepherds. Another word for shepherds is pastors. There is never a shortage. They are in ample supply. And in a sweeping statement, Jesus said, he says, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. He most, Jesus is obviously not, not referring to the prophets of old like, like Moses and, and Elijah and, and Daniel and David. We would, perhaps a, we could paraphrase the words of John this way, all who have come before me claiming to be me are thieves and robbers. These are the false Christ, the antichrist, those who pretend to be the Messiah, those who pretend to be shepherds. Because why? Because the Pharisees, they certainly saw themselves as the gatekeepers of the kingdom of God in Jesus' day. They had been doing that for a while. This is why in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told them in no uncertain terms. He says to them in Matthew 23 verse 13, But woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to that. You keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven. 
For you neither enter nor permit those trying to enter to go in. So rather than, they were actually making it difficult. They were stopping people from coming to the kingdom, which is a, a horrible thing to do. The flock is obviously one of the, the favourite symbols, favourite terms to be used of the church. The gathering of believers, the family of God. It's, the church is a flock. We are his sheep. Jesus, as the gate, provides the entrance into the family of God. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, we are able to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and to have fellowship with brothers and sisters in faith. The family of God is comprised of sheep of all sizes and shapes and breeds. Did you know there is about a thousand breeds of sheep out there? A thousand. And we just knew them as white. Look, the white sheep. Bad. Sheep with different talents. Sheep that have different ages, different processes. And any farmer will tell you that for the best production of, of wool and, and to keep the, a certain type of sheep, whether they're merinos or whatever, they're just the common names obviously, uh, they, it's best not to mix them up. Don't mix the sheep up. Keep them separately. And yet here we are, in this flock, all mixed together, right? United in a common faith. United in baptism. United in mission, which is stronger. Our calling is much stronger than our differences. Just because we are different colours, it looks different, but with the same heart, the same Saviour, the same Lord, united by the truth. This is the family of God. We call Liverpool Baptist Church very different, but at the same time we stand together as His children. Common salvation. This is what makes the church unique. This is what makes the church beautiful. What else about the gate? The gate is unique. See, while the gate could be familiar and you recognise it, you should be able to recognise the, the gate, the true gate, but it's also unique. Jesus said in verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Whoever, whoever enters through me will be saved. There are no other 
gates. Well, what about Muhammad and, and Buddha and everybody else? No, doesn't cut it. They never claimed to be the gate. They pointed towards, towards God in, in, in their own way. But only Jesus, only Jesus said, I am the gate. And whoever enters through me will be saved. So don't, don't believe this lie that all the ways lead to God because they are, they are contradictions. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. You cannot hold two contradictory thoughts together in harmony because it's a lie. You either accept Jesus as the gate, the only gate, or you reject it. Put together this with what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That is a very sobering statement, isn't it? Why can't everybody find it? Because Jesus said so. Only a few find it. Well, couldn't you make it easier? Well, what else do you want him to do? He's done everything. Showing us the truth. And if you are here and you have found the gate, rejoice in the Lord and say a big hallelujah because... You found the way, the truth and the life and it's here. There is nowhere else. I like the way that the message translation has it from Eugene Peterson. This is what he said. He says, don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practised in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and it requires total attention. He is the only genuine door. Man will forever be trying other ways and find, to find other doors. He tells us that there is a broad door that most people try to walk through because that's where most people go. And when they give any thought to spiritual things, they think in terms of doing these things which will in some way try, that will try and qualify, get qualified them morally to be good enough to achieve salvation. That is the most popular way. All of these various approaches can, rolled into, can be rolled into one caption. What I have done to reach to God. What I have done. My efforts. Thoroughly focused on self-effort and therefore self-gratification. It is up to me to get to heaven. But there is a second door. Let's call it what he has done. Jesus described this door as small and narrow, not many find it. It is unattractive 
to our human pride because those who enter cannot claim that they deserve what they find when they walk through it. Those who enter this gate cannot boast about anything they have done. Instead, the salvation that is found through the door of divine accomplishment is wrapped up in what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. The door to heaven is as narrow as Jesus himself. There was a preacher from the 19th century called Robert Murray McShane, one of the great preachers of the 19th century. He was the pastor of St. Peter's Dundee in Scotland, but died all too soon at the age of 29, having been in ministry and as a preacher for only seven years, but he had unbelievable impact in those seven years. Now, he had this to say about Jesus being the door on the uh, and he, this sermon was preached on the 11th of September 1842. And I quote, he said, The invitation is not to look at the door, but to enter in. There are many, other, there are many that hear about the door, but that is not enough. It is to enter in at it. And there are many that like to hear about the door, but yet they do not enter in. Ah, my brethren, that's the great cheat of the devil. I am persuaded many of you will go away this day well pleased because you have heard about the door, but you do not enter in. There are many that go a step further. They look in at the door, but yet they do not enter in. I believe that many of you are often brought here But when it comes to the point that you must leave your idols, that you must leave your sins, you do not enter in. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. End of quote. That's the truth, isn't it? What are you going to do with the door? Are you going to stare at it? Are you going to walk through it? What are you going to do? And lastly, fulfilment. Verses 9 to 10. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Verse 9. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This this phrase, uh, they will come in and go out, is a unique uh, Jewish expression. To be able to come and go unmolested, uh, was the Jewish way of describing a life that is that is peaceful in the shalom, in the wholesome, full way, the wholesome peace. This is what it means to come and go as you please. It, there's, there's a freedom, there is peace uh, involved here. It affects our relationships with one another, with God. Now, in the context of, of the church, to go in and, and out could mean that God's sheep come in to be to receive. The sheep come in to receive. They come in to be to be equipped, and yet they go out to give. They go out to minister. They go out to serve. And this leads to one of the verses that is often misquoted in the prosperity gospel. One of the maladies of our day not just in Australia, but in 
most of the world today, which is unfortunate. And here it says, when it says, have it to the full, in other versions it says, abundantly. The message translation says this, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. I like that, more and better life. That's what Jesus is the doorway to. We have access to an abundant life through the gate, Jesus Christ. Now, it is tempting, it is tempting to equate abundant life with simply just cheap imitations of the world. Unfortunately, much of what we hear from pulpits is nothing more than a cheap imitation of the world. The abundant life which is ours through Christ does not necessarily involve comfort or wealth or an abundance of worldly things. It is contentment in the biblical sense. Whether we have a lot or whether we have nothing, we are content. Bill Hybels, in uh, in one of his books, tells a story about Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was probably at his time the richest man in the world, a billionaire. And this is what he says, and I quote, he says, All he ever wanted in life was more. He wanted more money, so he parlayed inherited wealth into a billion-dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, so he broke into the Hollywood scene and soon became a filmmaker and a star. He wanted more sensual pleasures, so he paid handsome sums to indulge his every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills, so he designed, built and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political favours so skillfully that two US presidents became his pawns. All he ever wanted was more. He was absolutely convinced that more would bring him true satisfaction. Unfortunately, History shows otherwise. This man concluded his life emaciated and colourless, with a sunken chest, fingernails in grotesque, inches-long corkscrews, rotting black teeth, tumours and innumerable, innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction. Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. He died a billionaire junkie, insane by all reasonable standards. Is that what more means? When Jesus made that statement in John 10.10, he was saying in effect, I came to give you something more than just a mere existence. I came to give you more than just a sweet retirement. I came that you might really live. In the Gospels, you see the word life is used 130 times. Yes, it is about the eternal life 
yes, yes, but life here as well. Yes, most certainly. When Jesus talks about abundance, he is referring to the things of God, relationship, presence, power, steadfast love, abundant, abundant forgiveness, full of grace. It means true love in a world of hatred, inner peace in a world of turmoil. It means joy in a world where happiness comes and goes. It means purpose in a world that doesn't make much sense and at best is meaningless. Wisdom in a world that is ever learning but never coming to the truth. That's what an abundant life means. Even if we have to know it from the negative, we have to come at it from the negative perspective. Let me conclude. Let me leave you with the words of Robert Murray McShane who had this to say. He said, My dear brethren, there may come a time in Scotland when there when there." will be little pasture, when there will be no under-shepherd, when the witnesses will be slain. Yet the Lord will be your shepherd. He will feed you. You shall go in and out and find pasture. End of quote. It's good, isn't it? The Lord will be your shepherd. Amen. Amen. Let us conclude with a song. Thank you.